Good evening, everybody. Way more people than we thought we were coming along. We're very pleasantly surprised. It's fantastic. Thank you for coming along to your National Library. I'm Stuart Baines, the Library's Assistant Director of Community Outreach. Just before we kick off, if you have mobile phones on you, can you please switch them to silent? That'd be great. Thank you. As we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land. I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for this land we are now privileged to call home. I'm delighted so many of you have come along tonight. Tim is a National Geographic Adventurer honoree and the Australian Adventurer of the Year for 2006, who has pursued a life of adventure, writing and documentary film. If that's not enough, he speaks fluent Russian, guides in Serbia and Mongolia, has spent the best part of a decade travelling across Russia, Mongolia and Central Asia by bicycle, rowboat, skis, horse and camel. His most renowned journey was a three-and-a-half-year odyssey from Mongolia to Hungary by horse on the trail of Genghis Khan and in the spirit of the nomads of the steppe. I'm exhausted just thinking about all that. Tim's journey produced 137 hours of film and four-and-a-half years of writing, which resulted in his 2010 documentary series, The Trail of Genghis Khan, and his award-winning book, On the Trail of Genghis Khan, An Epic Journey Through the Land of the Nomads, published by Bloomsbury in 2013. Tonight, Tim will share his experiences and adventures with you. But before Tim comes to the stage, we'll whet your appetite with a short video. When I was 20 years old, my friend Chris and I were cycling across Mongolia. While struggling through the Gobi Desert one day, these amazing wild horsemen came galloping from over the horizon. They headed off to places that our bikes could never have gone. These people had a world without boundaries. From here in Mongolia stretched the great Eurasian steppe to Hungary, and their ancestors were once warriors who crossed this vast space. It inspired in me a dream to live the life of a nomad and ride a horse from Mongolia to the Danube. I never imagined what lay before me. Long nights alone menaced by wolves and thieves impossible mountain passes and the most extreme climate on earth. I'd even be caught in a war between sedentary and nomad people and face a personal tragedy that almost ended my journey. But I was driven on by an old nomad wisdom. To understand the wolf, you must put on the skin of a wolf and see through its eyes. Ladies and gentlemen, can please welcome Tim. I thought I'd, I thought I'd start tonight right back where the embryo of this, this journey was born, in a, in a sense, and that was here in the Gobi Desert of Mongolia when I was 21 years old, about 16 years ago now. At this stage, my friend Chris and I were in the 12 months, in fact, into a journey by bike to cross Russia to Beijing. We'd had this kind of dream that we'd, we'd head off on a budget of $2 a day uh, across Russia, Siberia, with the, the aim of finishing in Tiananmen Square. By this stage, we were um, 
You can see we're looking a bit worse for wear. There were two main reasons to celebrate. We'd just broken our record for consecutive days without a wash, uh, which was about three or four weeks. And we'd also just experienced my bike snapping in half for the second time in the journey. But by this stage, we'd been through the snow. Uh, Early on in the journey, we had one of our first adventures or misadventures. We'd been riding along in minus 15, minus 20, getting colder and colder, when in this village called Babushkin, right up in the far northwest corner of Russia, we were waved in by an old lady called Baba Galia, a lovely old Babushka. And she said, you're not going any further until you have some hot mushroom soup with us. So we, we of course, went inside, and as I sat there starting to defrost and melt, I felt this terrible tingling in my toes and eventually discreetly pulled the socks off under the kitchen table. And there were these great big purple extensions to my big toes. And I kind of nudged my friend Chris, who I'd met here actually at ANU during my six months of uh, of university life. And um, Chris shrugged. He was from Bathurst, never really seen snow, been in the cold. Baba Galia looked down and screamed out this word, Omarajenya, which of course means frostbite in Russian. And then she used all manner of expletives, picked up our, our cheap running shoes, tossed them out the door, gave me some knee-high felt boots known as Valenki, and then dragged us both down to the local doctor's clinic, straight past the queue, into the room. The guy lent me down onto a bench, got the scissors out and went snip, snip. Um, these couple of bits of flesh were tossed in a bin, and he looked back with this great big grin on his face and said, well, don't worry about it, I'm not going to charge you for this operation. Uh, <laughs> but if you wouldn't mind bringing me a baby kangaroo as a gift uh, when you come back from Australia, that'd be great. Fortunately, the frostbite hadn't been that bad. In fact, it had repaired itself within two or three weeks. But Baba Galia had, by this stage, had become, if you like, both of our surrogate surrogate Russian grandmother. In fact, I would stay in touch with with Baba Galia for many, many years until she unfortunately passed away about, about four years ago. She'd cook up these enormous breakfasts, always serve three shots of vodka before the porridge. (laughs) And it really set the tone for our journey that adventure for me, and particularly on this trip, was actually all about finding a way into the local culture and the people. It was a vehicle for getting to know their culture, their history, as well as, of course, a little bit about myself. We'd then eventually been through the melting snows of spring where the road ran out, We'd pushed along the what's called the Balm, the Baikalamuski Magistral, and this construction lasted uh, for about a day before we realised that the trains would come unpredictably from both directions on both lines. One, one day uh, I met this man and he kind of epitomised in many ways the, the many Siberian families we stayed with and he stopped in the middle of the road and said, right, you're having three shots of vodka with me. And I said, well, it would be a little bit difficult to have three shots and then do another 80 kilometres of bike riding today. And he became increasingly mad. His face went beetroot red. And he said something like, well, you think it's easy to, to uh, drive a truck after three shots of vodka? <laughs> <laughs> and as I, we wobbled off down the road, it kind of dawned on me that, that this spoke volumes about these people that were going through a very, very difficult transition after the collapse of the Soviet, Soviet Union. They were taking every opportunity to, to embrace the moment, to celebrate, to make friends. But here we were in the, in the Gobi Desert, as I said, and it, 
we could never have been prepared for what we witnessed, for me at least, arriving there, pushing our bikes through this sand and suddenly seeing this little dot that would grow and grow over the horizon, a man or a woman on a horse. They'd come over, perhaps give us a handful of dried curd known as adul or a swig of fermented mare's milk and then off they'd go in the other direction, leaving us feeling like uh, wimpy tourists uh, just pushing our bikes through their land where it can be you know, minus 40 or 50 in the winter, can be 40 or 50 degrees of heat in the summer and unlike where I grew up, they only had a couple of inches of tent felt to insulate them from the extremes. But, but much more than that, what, what really struck me was that this was a land without fences, a land where the people still move with the seasons. It's the kind of vision that I had probably dreamt of <coughs> as a child growing up in Gippsland, of seeing this kind of unadulterated landscape, pre-colonial times, if you like, I wanted to, to know a lot more and to experience that connection to, to nature that nomads have and that freedom as well. And when I went home to Australia, I started to learn more and more about the ancestors of the modern-day Mongols, who of course under Genghis Khan went on those great journeys from Asia into Europe and further afield, creating the largest land empire, a contiguous land empire the world's ever seen. And what really interested me, of course, wasn't the war path of Genghis Khan or his soldiers, it was the fact that here was the, the leader of the largest contiguous land empire there's ever been, and he wasn't a king sitting on a throne in a castle somewhere in Rome or Beijing. He was, in fact, a nomad who lived his entire life on horseback, died at the age of 72, apparently from falling off, off a horse. There was a lot more to nomadic culture than, than many of us know and, and knew. So one day when I was walking the, the dog with... Uh, my mum back in Gippsland, I said to her that I'd like to, to ride a horse from the old capital of the Mongol Empire, Hadahorden, across what's known as the Great Eurasian Steppes, as far as the Danube River in Hungary, which is where the steppe kind of tapers off. Mum kind of stopped, looked back a bit speechless. Uh, she knew just as well as I uh, that I couldn't ride a horse. Uh, in fact, I was still terrified of these big animals ever since I was, I, mean, I was seven when I was bucked off a horse at home, uh, broken my arm and been shipped off to hospital. But I was determined to at least give this, this idea a shot. I wanted to go from east to west because I wanted to learn about nomadic life in Mongolia firsthand, carry that, that banner of the, of the spirit of the nomads west and come back into Europe looking, <coughs> at, looking at sedentary life through the prism of their world. And it wasn't just the Mongols, of course, that interested me. I wanted to understand who the Kazakhs were who occupied that, the largest steppe nation at the core of the, the continent, the Kalmyks, whose ancestors were the last people to make the great trek uh, from, Asia, from Europe into Asia, and, or sorry, from Asia into Europe and then back again. I wanted to know about the Cossacks, the mercenaries of the, the steppe, southern steppes of Russia, the Crimean Tatars, who's, who Stalin uh, accused of being the descendants of Mongol invaders. The Hutsuls, who still live a no semi-nomadic life in the High Carpathians of Ukraine. And finally, the Hungarians, whose ancestors, the Magyars, also came riding out of Asia as nomads about 1,000 years ago. But there was a lot of water to, uh, to go under the bridge before I could start this journey. And you might be wondering, you know, where did the inspiration come from? Hopefully, uh, that'll become obvious as this story evolves. But this was about three or, four, three or four years later, after that first moment on the bike, 
this man, Ochirabat, and uh, he sold me his fir- my first horse. And he and his mates looked on and said, well, what are you going to do when the wolves attack? Uh, what happens when the thieves steal your horses? Uh, why aren't you carrying a gun? And I was a little bit taken aback. It wasn't the kind of journey I'd pictured in my mind. I'd pictured putting the gear on the back of my animals and heading west, compass in one hand, no Monday to Friday, no nine to five, complete and utter freedom. In fact, one of my friends had said that all I had to do was keep following the the setting sun and when the people started speaking French, it would mean that I'd gone too far. (laughs) And it was a fairly naive and simplistic idea, but in reality, that part of what had drawn me to this journey. There was a simple ingredient. There was the horse, myself, and that in itself would connect 6,000 years of horseback uh, nomadic history and, of course, all these different countries and cultures that have since been become separate with with modern-day state boundaries. And I think you do need to start any big expedition with a pinch of naivety. It's a a virtue that's that's often overlooked. Mind you, the trip didn't start very well. I heard this terrible neighing from my horse, and so I ran into the dark and just discovered um, probably the worst thing possible Two horses were gone. Come back! <laughs> so that, that didn't work, obviously, but this was, this was five days into the trip. I'd been planning for 18 months by this stage. I'd shipped all my gear to Mongolia, finally bought the horses. The previous evening had been like that utopian dream uh, that, that I had in my mind, this big oceanic space of, of grassland, people bringing their animals in for milking, kids galloping around bareback, But at three in the morning, it had become pitch black, the wind was rapping at my tent, and I could just hear these two horses galloping off into the night. And I didn't want to believe they were mine until I I realised that there was also a sniggering sound. By the time I crawled out, uh, it was pretty obvious that they'd been stolen. Fortunately, one of my friends, Tsirin, had told me that if you don't solve your problems in Mongolia before the sun comes up, then you probably never will. So I headed off on my one remaining horse of the three, and miraculously, really, a couple of hours later, this great big herd came galloping over a hill, and there were my animals at the tail end. The nomad nearby came up to me, and he kind of intimated, well, I know they're your horses. You must have tied them up really, really badly. They came to me themselves. And that didn't explain where the halters had gone, the hobbles, but he took me, it didn't really matter. He took me back to his home. These are the felt tents that nomads once lived in right across step as far as Europe. He slaughtered a goat, we had some fermented mare's milk, and eventually taught me what would become a a crucial nomad proverb. A man on the step without friends is as narrow as a finger, and a man on the step with friends is as wide as the step. Now, it could have been these guys who stole them. These were the last people I spoke to before dark. With time, I'd learned that, however, that horse stealing was simply part and parcel of life out here. I'd learned that if someone was trying to steal my horse, that I should take it as a compliment. It meant that I had a horse that that was worth treasuring, that was worth looking after. More than that, I I learned that if someone can steal a horse and get away with it, then the horse is more deserving of that owner than you anyway. Uh, In Kazakhstan, I learned about a tradition called Barimta, which dictates that if someone uh, is good enough to steal a horse, you also have the right to steal it back. 
although there are rules for it to be honourable, for example, you need to be able to steal back your horse in broad daylight. Um, the other thing is, of course, though, that you're allowed to steal the cattle of that family, the horses. You can even kidnap the wife of the thief until everything's resolved. And this crystallised in a very unusual way at one stage in Kazakhstan, six months after this experience. I stopped at this little railway siding in the, in the freezing cold and the dark, desperate for water. One of the men came to me, the rail track worker, and said, Tim, I've heard that there's people coming to steal your horses tonight from a nearby town. And I brushed it off. I said, it couldn't be possible. No one knows I'm here. But sure enough, middle of the night, crashing and banging, I leapt out. What had happened was... Um, I could see this figure stumbling off in the dark. Someone had jumped on my horse, galloped away, and then realised that my horse was still tied up. And the horse had kind of somersaulted. He'd been thrown to the earth. The other track workers came out. We caught the thief. It was the same guy who'd warned me about thievery uh, <laughs> earlier, earlier that night. Eventually, the next morning, he handed back my head torch and the hobbles that he'd also stolen. And he said, well done, according to Barim Tay, you've stolen my, my horse, your horse back. But please, now just take my wife, but take her all the way to Hungary. <laughs> and I, I kind of rode off in two minds, as I often did on this trip. On one hand, kind of terrified and feeling under threat. To lose a horse out here would be like losing your boat on the ocean. But on the other hand, there was nothing malicious. It was a privilege, you know, I had to be part of this, this very ancient culture. But going back to this original original experience, what I did learn was that I needed to take note, I needed to start breaking out of my own little dream world and getting to know the people, getting to know their ways, no matter how different and how difficult it was. My editor later told me something when I was writing the manuscript that I think retrospectively um, it was re very relevant. He said, you should always be more, uh, when, when confronted by something, be more curious and less offended. Now, certainly, had I been offended by the things that happened to me on this trip, it would have been a miserable journey. This Mongolian system requires uh, two people most of the time. Yeah, but these guys know what they're doing because they pack up their girths twice a year and off they go with all of their gears. Could be up to 50 k's away. To their winter home. So I started to learn a little bit more about who these nomads really are and of course why they, they pack up and move with the seasons, putting their animals, their belongings, even their children on the back of camels, what could be yaks in some areas, horses. I'll never forget uh, the day I took this photo. It was in, in the far west of Mongolia in a part of the Altai Mountains and I'd been kind of clinging on to my horse for dear life, going along the edge of a, a gorge and suddenly, in front of us, with this backdrop of, of rock and ice, came a, came a lady leading about six or seven camels down. And she stopped, the lead camel knelt, and she pulled back a sheepskin to reveal uh, her baby. And it left me with this very humbling feeling that these people put more trust in their animals, uh, with whom they live like, like comrades in arms, um, than, than we might put in... Than, than the trust we might put in fellow human beings, strangers uh, especially uh, in, in our society. And the reason these people do live so closely with their animals and through them to their environment is of course that unlike, unlike where I grew up in the nice green pastures of, of Gippsland, 
there simply isn't enough uh, grass to support nomadic life all year round. If they were to put up a, a, a fixed address, a fence, a house, uh, it would be virtual suicide. Um, they need to move with the seasons according to where that grass is and according to the unique weather of, of, each, of each year. There's two metres of snow up here in eastern Kazakhstan in winter. If I don't move, I'm going to be stuck here till March. But it's just bloody hard. The fingers just get totally frozen, tying up the saddles, and the tent's just covered in rime and frost. It's just cold. It's like the earth's just been entombed in ice. In retrospect, Mongolia had really been like the, the honeymoon of the journey. It was also my apprenticeship, but it was summertime. There were plenty of people around to ask when things went wrong. But Kazakhstan was a totally different prospect, about two-thirds of size or width of Australia, a place very sparsely inhabited, particularly in, in the centre, and nomadic life had changed somewhat there in, in the past century. What I didn't know at this stage was that it was also going to be the coldest winter in about 40 years, in this little northeast corner, at least, of Kazakhstan. In fact, just after arrival, people had told me that it was be the beginning of a jut, and the shoots are these very, very harsh winters that sweep across the steppe once or twice a decade, traditionally wiping out millions uh, of animals. This is what specifically the Mongols would call a glass zud, when the ice begins to encase everything inside. It gets very, very heavy on the grass, leans over, it melts a fraction and then refreezes. The animals have to forage for their own uh, food all year round. When they can't break through, the... the the result's inevitable, and they say that horses that survive through till spring uh, in these conditions are often naked by that time because they resort to eating the hair uh, off each other's bodies. Fortunately, I met this man, Asset, in a small village called Janajol, and he decided that he would guide me for a couple of weeks, ride with me, and at the end of that time, he said to me, Tim, you definitely need a friend on this long road. You need someone to keep you warm at night in the tent and most importantly to protect you from wolves. And I thought that he was about to, to offer his services as a guide all the way to Hungary when, of course, he gave me his puppy, Tigan. Or, in fact, it was his son's puppy. And Tigan was this, this tiny little uh, bony six-month-old who was leaping off the snow onto my shoulders just to get his paws out of the cold. Uh, I resented having him, I tried to give him back, in fact, but Asset wasn't having any of it. In fact, he said, Tim, not only are you going to have him, but you're going to pay, him, pay, pay me for him as well. Uh, because in, uh, in our culture, you cannot give dogs, guns, uh, knives, axes, and traditionally wives, <laughs> uh, you can't give them away. You must at least symbolically hand me something back, at least for my son. So this transaction took place, but I didn't have much hope that he'd survive uh, at best more than two or three weeks. Tegan, come on. Come on, mate. Ah. Hey, no. Tegan, no. What? Later on, it became pretty obvious that he was thinking, well, thank God Tim's protecting me from the wolves. Um, <laughs> but it didn't matter because at the time, at least we were getting really good sleep. Uh, until then, I'd been, been having this terrible kind of 
waking up four, five, six times a night. And Tegan's sense of not, not just his, his friendship and the company that he gave, but also the sense of humour that he inspired, I think, became really important as the journey went on. In winter, we had one routine that, that I remember very clearly because every, every night, the first thing I'd do, I'd put Tegan inside a great big uh, canvas duffel bag and then I'd go about setting up the tent and the horses. And every night, just as dinner went on the boil and the, 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 the aromas were wafting around camp, this canvas bag would come to life and it would start hopping towards the petrol stove. And that was usually the cue for the nightly treat that was going over, zipping open a little bit and dropping in a piece of sulla, which is salted or smoked uh, pig fat. We headed south to avoid the, the heavy snows and the cold, and we went a little bit too far. Uh, this environment here was well below freezing, but there was now no water at all, and what water there was was, was frozen solid. This resembles what in Mongolian they would call a kharzud, or a blackzud, which is essentially a winter drought, and obviously they rely on, on snow for hydrating the animals in winter, and when there is no snow, it's even worse than, than a glass hood. In this area, I came across a lot of these nomad graves, three or four hundred years old. Asset had always said that I should sleep inside them, and then the old spirits of the steppe would, would, um, would look after me. I often would, would lunch inside out of the wind and camp nearby. The comfort they brought me was, was more in the sense that at least I knew I was on track in Kazakhstan, there's only 3 or 4% of society which is now nomadic, uh, as opposed to 97% about 100 years ago. And that's because in the late 1920s and early 30s, Stalin's industrialisation campaign reached the steppes, and about half of the, the nomads died in a famine. And those nomads that had survived that era had, had then become uh, attuned to the new Soviet reality, only for that Soviet reality to come crashing down in 1990. But out here, at least I could imagine that I'd, at once upon a time, there'd been thriving nomad communities. Like this man, who is one of those, those few nomads out there today. He'd spent 60 years as a shepherd, looking after his sheep from the back of his camel. And, and seeing him kind of get on board and rise up into the morning light was the, a perfect picture of that, that in symbiosis between man and animal that has shaped not only the history of the Eurasian steppe, but cultures and histories around the world. By this stage, I, I was starting to, to transform a little bit in my thinking and the way I saw things. The world looked very different from the back of a horse in a place where there were no roads, there were very few towns or villages. I'd been told in Russia that if you never know exactly where you are in life, then you're never lost. And that started to make a real, a real practical sense. It was meaningless if I could have had a GPS and knew where I was via satellite. It only meant something if I could find grass and water and help. And there's this, there's this, um, this great saying that I think speaks, uh, uh, t tells you a lot about the philosophy of nomad life. Uh, I think this is kind of adapted from an Indian saying, to the mountain nomads, possessions were for using, not hoarding. Life to them was a bridge. One should cross, cross over it, um, not build a house on it. And certainly in the big open areas of steppe in Kazakhstan, it was the moods of the weather, the, the availability of grass that created the character. There were no, no real features or fixed addresses. You might be wondering at this stage, where at a root level did that inspiration come from for me? And my, my guess is that it came from my childhood. My father, Andrew, 
was an outdoor educator and some of my earliest memories as a kid were jumping in a car and hitting the road. The feeling that away from school, away from the Monday to Friday, suddenly um, I, was, I was able to write the script of my own life and anything seemed, seemed possible. And being in the wilderness over the years had already, by the time I finished school, become a place, I think, where life became distilled down to those bare essentials, those important things, especially our personal qualities that sometimes get lost in a world of technology and possessions. And my dad had been a bit upset um, when, I, when I quit my law degree here at ANU after one semester, uh, but I went to study as <coughs> wilderness guiding in Finland for a year and never came back. Um, but I, as he saw it kind of develop into a way of life and a career, um, he, he um, became more and more proud, proud of what I, what I was doing. I've since st started taking groups, um, s young people especially, back to Mongolia on treks. And I tr one of the things I like most is just watching them transform during the journey. I get a lot more, more enjoyment in a way vicariously experiencing the journey through them these days than, than sometimes I do myself on my own trips. But getting back to Kazakhstan, things were starting to get pretty desperate. We headed out into a place called the Starving Steppe and we're starting to get very cold, minus 30, minus 40 degrees. And the wolves were, were an issue. And just before I go to bed, I throw a few firecrackers out the, uh, the tent door into the dark as a way of uh, scaring off the wolves and hopefully it works. These firecrackers did seem to work, at least no wolves ever came to my camp in the winter. However, the first time I filmed myself doing this, I lit the firecracker before opening the tent door. <laughs> and as I kind of fumbled there, it exploded and burned a hole right through the, right through the entrance. But it was taking three or four hours to pack the horses each morning. And some days I'd only make it 10 to 15 kilometres. It was really more about keeping the big map of Eurasia hidden and concentrating on making it, you know, five, ten k's to lunch safely, eat and then make the rest to camp and then do it all again. However, when this photo was taken, I was becoming a bit desperate. It was two days to Christmas, it was minus 40 degrees, one of the horses was starting to develop an abscess in its hoof. But more than that, the tent had become the, uh, the texture of cellophane and I was worried about it just falling apart if a storm came in. And also the GPS had started to freeze up and was unreliable, so I decided to self-rescue. I pulled out the map and there was a town about 150 k's away. So I got there as quickly as I could and on Christmas Eve, kind of limped into this place imagining that there'd be a lovely house with a family waiting, a roast on the table <laughs> and, and hopefully a barn full of hay and grain. However, this is what I saw. Akbakai, as it was called, otherwise known locally as the place that God forgot, uh, was, a, was a very remote and semi-kind semi of bankrupt gold mining town. There were a couple of people I found on the outskirts. They thought I was a lost Russian geologist. They took me back to their mud hut and at least I wasn't uh, alone and I was warm. But in the morning, this was the first thing I saw when I opened my eyes. This, this was one of my hosts, uh, Grisha, and his friend, Vidka. And it turned out that, that Grisha and Vitka were two notorious uh, local Russian men who had lost their truck driving licenses, drunk at the wheel many years before, and they'd been eking out a living here ever since. And they said, 
Tim, don't worry about it. You're going to have a wonderful winter here with us. We might even be able to find you a wife. You can sell your horses, um, start learning Kazakh language. Everything's going to be good. I went to look for hay and grain for the animals. Uh, there was none, being a gold mining town. I came back and they were rolling drunk. They caught a couple of street pigeons and boiled them up for Christmas dinner. And that night, <coughs> they kind of kept me awake with their antics. In the morning, I kind of crawled out with a pigeon bone, still munching on it. And uh, my mum and dad and my two brothers and sister, Boxing Day by this stage, they were sitting out in 26 degrees of sunshine, <laughs> red wine, probably flicking between the Boxing Day test and, and the Sydney to Hobart. And at that point, I definitely wanted a way out. I wanted to be home at least for a day. Um, however, on this kind of journey, that wasn't, wasn't an option, particularly with three or four mouths to feed. What I didn't know was that <coughs> my difficulties in Akbukai were only just beginning. It would be three months before I could leave this place. Uh, many things went wrong. My, uh, I got sick, my petrol stove broke in a storm, and eventually Tiggin was stolen by some unemployed mine workers who were actually catching stray dogs and stealing people's pet dogs to eat to survive. Fortunately, a friend of mine uh, that I made, his name was, uh, was Baiduk, um, he, he found Tiggin and eventually, eventually, eventually uh, rescued him. Tiggin had been beaten, he hadn't been fed, and apparently he was given some vodka raw eggs and put in a sauna for half a day uh, before he, he, he kind of came back to life. And three weeks later, he was ready to walk. But during this time, Baiduk would often tell me, he'd say, Tim, what are you rushing for? Just sit back, everything's okay, I'll take care of you, have a cup of tea. When the time comes, you'll be okay. And eventually, I was now months behind schedule, I had to embrace this, this kind of philosophy. And they, they do say in Kazakh that if you ever have to rush in life, rush slowly. <laughs> and it dawned on me that in this environment, I couldn't really dictate the terms and I couldn't, I couldn't really afford to measure time in, in hours or, or days of the week. It was more about what the seasons allowed, the condition of my animals. And what's more, in this environment, time was not necessarily money. And it was liberating to realise that, that any goal I'd set myself arriving in, in Hungary was just an arbitrary one. There was no one actually waiting for me. And sure enough, my time did come. Um, Baiduk had a little farewell ceremony out here in the steppe and, and I never, never turned back. The grass was, was coming out, people were emerging from hibernation and it was time for these great big camels to have their, their spring haircuts. time of camel shearing. <coughs> they use the wool of the camel to make their winter clothing. <coughs> a single camel can also feed a family for months. This is what you call a camel in the lounge room. A hell of a lot of meat, and uh, you can see the two humps from the Bactrian camels sitting right here behind me. 
Um, seeing all that meat reminds me of this, this uniquely nomad philosophy, which is that it's only fair as meat eaters that humans are turned into eat and meat themselves when they die. And so that's why, particularly in the west part of Mongolia, from which I returned only two days ago, that they still have the tradition of taking the, the bodies up to a mountaintop for the wolves to, to eat. And they believe that if the person is eaten quickly by the wolf, then that they were a good person in life. Uh, if they're left to rot, they're not so good. But only by the wolf ingesting the flesh can that spirit can essentially be, be set free. They always joke with me that, that Mongolians are in fact vicarious vegetarians because they only eat animals that in turn eat grass. It started to get very, very hot after leaving, leaving Akbakai. In fact, a head lay 40 days in a row of above 40, which is very normal in the central part of Kazakhstan. And it forced me to totally rethink the, the routine. I needed to start saddling up after sunset and then riding right through until dawn. It was never possible to sleep uh, entirely on the horse. I oh, was sorry to get through without sleeping, so I'd, I'd sometimes fall asleep on the horse <laughs> by mistake or wake up on the ground with, with ticking in my arms or, or better yet, a great big camel looking down at me. It was the hardest time of the journey for sure by, by a long shot in the summer, but it was also one of the most beautiful kind of shift, the sound of the, the, my animals shifting through the sands in the middle of the night. I'd just pick a star, get a compass bearing and follow it for many, many hours on end. But it was crucial to find shelter, food, water, before that great big ball of fire came back up over the horizon. And they say in Kazakh that first time as a friend, as a guest, you're a friend. Second time as a guest, uh, you're part of the family. And the third time, well, you can stay for life. And that's really, honestly, how I, I think I was treated for, for most of the journey, uh, like some kind of long, long lost relative. And every time I kind of, I was really in desperate need of a sense of company. It was there for me. And these are some of the 90 or 100 families that I did stay with. Uh, they, were, they were families of, of many different kinds. But eventually I came to understand, or at least have my own interpretation of this other saying, that mountains never meet, but, but people do. And I, I think it's a nomadic expression of how uh, perhaps our most precious capacity as human beings is to have relationships with one another, which might seem pretty obvious and logical, but it, it's all the more more <coughs> relevant when you're in a, such a hostile environment. The feeling of coming back into a girth, a sense of family, sense of warmth, colour, shelter. Um, it, you simply can't you can't move through a place like this without without um, without it leaving a deep imprint, a deep imprint on you, at least on me. And I think this saying that I read recently in a, in, a, in a fantastic book called The Impulse Society. It's almost like the, the model, modern equivalent that, of course, happiness is best predicted by the, by the depth, it should say breadth there as well, the breadth and depth of one's social connections. It took me about 14 months to, to cross Kazakhstan and um, then another, uh, another six months through Russia. I know we're kind of fast-forwarding through the journey here. Uh, by this stage, it did feel as if I'd made it somewhere. Made it to the Azov Sea. First time on the horses. I've seen the sea since I began, almost two years ago.
little crispness in the air and the horses are moving a lot faster, a lot more easily. So for me, arriving in the Crimean Peninsula was like landing in horse paradise. There was just this waist-high grass. Tiggin was off chasing hares and foxes. The horses were eating with the gusto of kind of hungry lions. Of course, the, the Crimea had been a, a very important outpost of the Mongol Empire and the, the Golden Horde for about 300 years. And no wonder with all this grass, of course, beyond that, as we all, many of you would be aware, Crimea is also a very strategically important place. And it's no wonder that, that Russia has gone to the efforts they have to take it back um, from Ukraine. By this stage, it, it, was a, it was a wonderful experience to see the Black Sea, to see all this grass. I knew that in my, in my bones that the, the real hardships of the journey were now over. The winters and the summers, uh, they were long gone. The horses would make it alive and fat, hopefully, to Hungary. Tigin was no longer just this little tiny uh, <coughs> shadow that would follow along. He was now proudly kind of guiding me. He was so spoilt by all the people we met that he would no longer accept bread from strangers unless they first lathered it thick with cream and jam. <laughs> he was, um, was honoured in every way. He was blessed here by a priest in, in western Kazakhstan with holy water. And then in a hotel, he was offered his own room free of charge. <laughs> and he kind of lay back with this great sense of entitlement. Tegan became much more the reincarnation of Genghis Khan than I ever could. He, um, <coughs> what I didn't realise is that among his uh, many rites of passage, he'd also become a father. In fact, I got a letter one day from the Moscow Academy of Sciences that owned a, a research farm where I'd left the animals for a, for a month at one stage. They wrote me this polite email suggesting I needed to start sending back child payments uh, <laughs> because of all of the, the puppies that he'd left behind. So his, his empire was growing and growing just like him. And the deep forests and treacherous peaks of the Carpathians. So if you'd shown me images like these before I set off on the journey, uh, I might have turned around, particularly as that kind of green scared novice horseman. But the, the truth is that the Carpathian Mountains, the last geographical barrier on the road to Hungary, they'd always been there and I'd always known they were there. One of those many places where put one foot wrong and it could all end in disaster. Uh, but the reality is that the journey by this stage with all its other unexpected challenges had more than equipped me with the skills to, to overcome these mountains. In fact, it was just a pleasure to pass over those same those same kind of trails that the Mongols had traversed all those centuries before. And it gave me a, a little bit of insight into just how skillful, hardened, and what an incredibly uh, developed mental map of the world these Mongols would have had by the time they reached Europe. A time in history when Europeans, by contrast, were probably goldfish in a bowl. Uh, not many of them had probably ventured further than, than, than the, the next parish before I move on, I just wanted to give you a glimpse of these incredible people called the Hutzels, who still live a semi-nomadic life up in the, in the high pasturelands of the Carpathians. In fact, it's been proven that their horses are the descendants of Mongol horses that, that were left behind uh, when, the Khan, when the Mongols retreated from, from Europe. I want to give you a little window into the life of Vasil who was a hat maker living in a small wooden hut up in the mountains that you could only reach by foot or horse. 
It's a common trait among nomads to colour their life with art. Basil, who's now 84, has been making traditional hats from the age of 16. He makes about 100 every six months, and every single one is unique. And when the Hutsul people wear their clothing, you get the impression that they're not just wearing it for display. It carries the very soul of their way of life, of their ancestors. He even decides to show me his coffin that he personally handmade. Everyone does it up here in the Carpathians when they're about the age of 40. He's got his best clothes in there because he wants to be well dressed when he goes into the spirit world. They remember here that life is transient. About a year and a half ago, I got a message from the priest in this town that had taken me under his wing uh, that Vasil had passed away and he'd been given a traditional burial. He'd been taken in the coffin on the back of a horse down to the, to the village cemetery uh, and put next, next to his wife. So finally, here we were looking down from the mountains to the plains of Hungary, uh, a place that felt like it might never arrive. Uh, by this stage, there'd been delay after delay but that had become the journey into itself. Word had spread, and now horsemen were waiting for me and horsewomen to, to guide me the last six weeks to the Danube River. For the Magyars, my journey had, had very special meaning because, of course, their ancestors had made a similar journey from Siberia and all what is probably northern Kazakhstan today into Europe in, in, in creating Hungary as we know it in the end of the ninth century. I'm introduced to Koshoi Leosh who's famous in Hungary for reviving the art of horseback archery. He's dedicated his life to living by the ideals of the ancient nomad warrior, and he's got thousands of followers worldwide. It's awe-inspiring. He's able to shoot off six arrows in 12 seconds at a full gallop and hit the target every time. It was these warriors that demolished the feudal systems of Europe and paved the way for light horse cavalry that was to become the standard for European armies of the future. So one of these horsemen, a guy called Tamash, he came up to me one day and he said, uh, Tim, I've been discussing your journey with all my friends and we've concluded one thing, we think you're completely mad. <laughs> um, he said it would have made more sense if a Hungarian or a Mongol had done this journey, but we can see in your heart and mind that you've become like a, a nomad and a horseman, a bit like us. And that was one of those many very special moments in those last uh, dying days and weeks of the journey. By the time Tim arrived on the Danube, he'd become a celebrity, welcomed by diplomats and world media. Tim had achieved the first known crossing of the steppe in modern times. He had learned from the nomads the challenge of the future for them, like for us, is to balance traditional knowledge of the land with the aspirations and needs of a fast-changing modern world. So finally I had the chance to, to take those, those last uh, few steps. Um, 
it was anything but an anticlimax. My mum had come from, from Australia, there were my, my brother had come, friends from Australia, all over Europe, diplomats and things, and it was just a, one of those moments where I could reflect on where it had started, and it was extraordinary, and still is really extraordinary to me, that this little tiny idea in my head had not only become my whole life for three and a half years, but it, it had drawn hundreds of other, of other people into it, and it would be fraudulent to, to say that it was my trip. Uh, it was, by this stage, the trip of, of hundreds of people. I'd started off not knowing a single person, and I think that was one of the driving forces of the, the trip, the, the very concept that, that no one knew I was coming, no one knew I existed, um, the, the, the prospect of turning up on someone's doorstep in a state of disrepair, opening the door, not knowing who's going to be behind it, and yet knowing that possibly within a few minutes you'd be sharing a vodka or a cup of tea, maybe it would turn into three days of feasting. And in that short period of time, what eventually transpired was that I a bond was, was formed and created that, that I've never been able to, to experience in any other context. Um, and certainly by the end, it was those friendships, those bonds I'd made that, that, that were the true measure of the trip. I think with time, difficulties and distance, all that kind of things, they become irrelevant, they fade uh, in, into the past. I'd learned, I think, to have a great sense of patience from the nomad, and um, I'd, I'd never be able to be as uncomplaining as they are, but, but certainly without that sense of, 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 of perspective and patience I wouldn't have gotten through, nor without Tiggin. Um, and the journey had, in a sense, equipped me for those great big things that I thought might, might bring me down. What I didn't mention was the biggest challenge of all on this trip, uh, which was also the most unexpected. I was riding through Ukraine, uh, only about eight, nine hundred kilometres from the finish line, when I got a message on my sat phone to call home, and that's when I discovered that my, my father, Andrew, um, had been killed in, in a car accident uh, that, that day. So I'd, within a day, I'd found a place to leave the animals behind. I flew back to Australia, and as the oldest of four kids, it was... Um, for all of us, in fact, it was just the, the most difficult thing that we'd ever had to deal with. And it had come out of, out of nowhere. Uh, Dad had been 56. After four months of being at home, I had to make a decision whether to come and rejoin my family of horses or to stay with my family in Australia. Uh, coming back, ultimately, um, I think was, was by far the better decision. Uh, even though I felt like I'd left home a bit early, it was a cathartic experience to, to ride with the animals through the springtime um, into summer and, and see my mum at the end. But certainly I was now looking forward to going home to Australia and spending lots of time with, uh, with friends and family. I'd planned this journey to take uh, 18 months on an Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> it was like 20 kilometres a day, five days a week. I'd get there in 16 months, a couple of months of holidays, and there was my trip one winter, and I'd be home. I'd write the book in six months, and then I'd be on to the next journey. <laughs> um, by this stage, it, it, it had taken three and a half years, and although it felt as if it was a failure to start with, that I was constantly behind schedule, um, I realised that, in fact, being able to be completely flexible um, and being able to allow the journey to, to just take its course was, was what became um, the real virtue of the trip. And finally, the Danube River was looking back at me as if to say, well, what took you so long? And everyone knows that in the modern world, you don't have to get on a horse to traverse a continent. I could have flown in six or seven hours. I probably could have walked faster, given all of the bureaucracy I had to get through taking horses and tigging across borders. 
but it's not the point. I think that even in an era when we can see most of the planet through our smartphones, there, there will never be a substitute for going out and having that, that sensory experience. And certainly for me, had I not never, never climbed onto the back of a horse, I would never have learnt those human wisdoms that have kind of transformed me, and I would never have come to know that entire uh, sense of history, and that, that spirit of generosity as well, um, that in a sense had bec now become my whole life. So thank you very much. Now we do have time for a few questions. Um, we have some microphones. Um, so please, if you have a question, raise your hand and do wait for the microphone. For anyone using the hearing loop, that's what the microphones are for and for the recording. Some of you probably already know and have guessed, but um, when I finished the trip, it, I had to make a couple of really big. I had to make, make a couple of really big decisions. One was what to do with the horses. Uh, they'd become my, my whole life by, by this stage, um, but there was no way I could bring them home. So I gifted them in the end to a, a local uh, kind of state care home uh, that had long wanted to set up a riding program. And I've been back to to Hungary uh, three times since, and they've got this great riding program set up for the children. This is one of Tigan's many progenies <laughs> that, that was a, also donated to the to the um, to the orphanage. He unfortunately his name was Tiggy and he he went away one day and never came home unfortunately. Um, but yeah, with Tiggan it was a much harder process. I came back for a year. I used to get these uh, messages about how he'd taken he'd, <laughs> he'd taken uh, he'd taken horsemen for a he'd followed horsemen for a, for a a day they had sent taxis to pick him up, but as you guessed, here he is. So, Tigan, oh, Tigan, you're being very naughty. <laughs> I think he was he was waiting for his moment. And, uh, um, yeah, no, it took it took a year, and uh, this was him in the back of a taxi going from Budapest to Vienna, and then he was put in a crate through Dubai and landed in in Melbourne, and he's since become uh, a fully fledged Australian citizen. <laughs> he's he's got an EU passport, he's got a, a Kazakh passport. Um, I had to raise about ten thousand dollars to to get him back, and that was largely thanks to people who came along at the time I was in Perth and um, I did events like this. Uh, the, one of my sponsors, Mount Designs, rented out the, the, the venues and we raised eight or $10,000, about $8,000 within two weeks uh, of presentations, which was just unbelievable. Um, some of you hopefully will be interested to know that Tigan is a father again in Australia. <laughs> He's um, about... Um, six weeks ago, he became the father of eight puppies <laughs> that, are, that are now residents at my mum's place. And within about three weeks, they'll need homes. So there's still a few which don't have homes. So if any of you are interested, um, <laughs> uh, you, 
you can see me at the end and give me your email address. <laughs> Any yeah. other questions? One in the middle there. Lindsay, just one in the middle. Do we know what breed of dog he is? What breed? His, um, his father was a, what they call a Tazi, a Taz, which is a, a, a Central Asian sighthound that is the descendant of the Saluki uh, that, that was brought to Central Asia by probably Silk Road traders, um, uh, Bedouin, Bedouins back in the day. Um, his Salukis look identical almost to, to Tazis, but his mother was a Russian shepherd dog, so he's got the features and temperament of uh, the hound, but he's got stick-up ears like a shepherd dog. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I was just... In Western Mongolia, uh, well, I came back, as I said, two days ago, and um, they were telling me there that they have a saying there that that when the first uh, Islamic missionaries came to convert the Kazakhs to to Islam, and they they are nominally Muslim, um, they were told that they needed to keep the dogs out of their their homes, but they said that there's no way that they would ever kick their tuzzies out. <laughs> that in fact they'd prefer to have the Tuzzy in the home and those people out of the home <laughs> because the Tuzzies are renowned for feeding them for, with the meat that they catch because they're, they're, they're hunters for catching the hares and the, the foxes and things. They, they clothe them because they use the fur pelts from the animals they catch and, um, and they keep them warm at night. So <laughs> yeah, the Tuzzies still have a really important place in, in nomadic culture in Kazakhstan. Time for a couple more questions. Tim, if I can just grab one question um, while I've got the microphone. Um, I've just had the pleasure of spending three weeks in Ladakh and, oh. and I see that uh, nomadic culture is still happening to an extent up in uh -huh. Ladakh. Uh -huh. Can you explain where else on this earth Ladakh, uh, that uh, nomadic culture is still happening? Well, I mean, I think Mongolia is, is unique in that respect and I couldn't tell you where the many other places on, on Earth are, but, but Mongolia is different in the, in the sense that it, it, it is a country almost entirely of, of, of nomads. Um, in many other countries you'll find that nomadic cultures seem to be at the fringe. They might be an ethnicity that is in the minority, but Mon even the people who live in the city in Ulaanbaatar are at best maybe two or three generations removed from life in the saddle and so nomadic culture nomadic the nomadic mindset infiltrates everything in everyday life even in that urban environment and so they have a, a kind of unique opportunity as an independent sovereign nation to 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 carry on their traditions to protect them to preserve them um and so that they don't so that nomadic culture doesn't become marginalized but these days about 20% of Mongolians are still uh, authentically nomadic, another 10% are semi-nomadic. Um, about half the population lives in the capital in, in Ulaanbaatar. And in, in the time I've been going to Mongolia, in the remote regions like the West, uh, life carries on as, as it always has, in a sense. And there's an incredible pride that you see people in, in that way of life. And I always tell people that that narrative we hear often in the West about kids being attracted like moths to a, to a, to a light. 
um, kids moving to the city, abandoning their, their way of life. It doesn't really happen quite that simply in Mongolia. Nomad families will have five or six children sometimes. Um, at three or four might end up in villages, towns or the cities, but there will always be, almost always be two or three that stay on. Um, in fact, there's m never been more nomads than now in, in Mongolia in terms of numbers. Um, there's more livestock than, than, than has ever been on the steppe before. In fact, there's probably too many, and that's putting the, the fragile steppe ecosystem under threat. So um, there's really no, no more room for more nomads in Mongolia. And so most kids do go to the city, they get educated. Um, but as some of you might know, uh, one of the, uh, the, the biggest or the biggest deposit of resources in Mongolia is a place called Oyutogoi, which has I think $250 billion thereabouts of, uh, of copper and gold. Uh, and that, until recently, when the resource price kind of crashed, had been driving uh, a lot of inflation, it had been driving massive um, economic growth. In 2011, Mongolia was the fastest growing economy in the world. And that, more than anything, puts the nomad way of life under threat. Uh, because it, it, it does marginalise their nomad economy, if you like. It means that kids might start aspiring to a job in, the, in mining rather than... Um, but um, in my experience, you've got nomadic cultures in sprawled across um, Siberia. There is still some strong nomadic communities in Kazakhstan. I'm mostly familiar with the reindeer herders in Siberia and the, um, and, and the, the steppe horse, the, the horseback nomads. I think that if the nomad way of life ever does die out in a place like Mongolia, it'll be really sad because they 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 offer us a glimpse into a huge chunk of, of hum human history, and also I think an alternative way of living with the environment, which is really harmonious with, with the with the animals and the and, and nature, and also has proven to be sustainable. <laughs> and whilst we all can't live like them, they've still got a lot of lessons I think we can learn from. And if we lose that, we're going to lose thousands of years of accumula accumulated knowledge. Um, we just have one last question because Tigan's had enough. So just <laughs> Tim, absolutely inspiring presentation. Um, there must be some fantastic water in Gippsland because I happen to know your sister, who's also a remarkable individual. Oh. Um, but she's squarely in the business community. Uh, she's leading the drive to build relationships between Australia and China. So um, you're both remarkable people. But um, you open the newspaper every day and you hear more about the importance of business and uh, our worldview seems to be caught up in the idea of business and facilitating trade. And I think it's time that uh, we had more people like yourself come and share this remarkable story of engaging the wider world. And uh, hearing your story and the way you present it reminds me of um, uh, the philosopher and mythologist Joseph Campbell, when he says, go out and follow your bliss. And I think that's what you've done. So beautiful, yeah. mate. Thank you. <laughs> well, I guess we're out of time, and I can't sum up better than that. So I'll skip straight to the book is available in the bookshop, unsurprisingly. Mm -hmm. And because you've come along tonight, there'll be a 10% discount. So please... Can you put your hands together for Tim at the chicken one more time? <laughs>